Monday. Happy Monday in the Elm. If you turned tuned in around nine o'clock, you got me, Babs Rose Ivy. This is Love Babs Love Talk. Hey, Harry Droz. Hey, Babs. How you doing? It's it's uh. I think the cold weather has arrived. It has, you know. And I was gonna put on a, a not a coat, but you know, a step up from the light jacket, like a fleece or something. Yeah, but then it got it was so big. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna like wrap my it, it just seemed I mean that's all I have right now so I guess I gotta use it so I went uh, back to the light jacket or or you could just shop Harry and buy a jacket that fits no nah, not yet I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna ride this thing out <laughs> I don't know till when but but okay look for people who know me I I wear six black six, and black. Yeah. I wear parachutes. Right? So this is this is a 3X and it fits pretty good. Yeah. Um, and I got jeans, but I got up to a 52 waist. It's big people. <laughs> I am wearing a size 40 right now. Whoa. I know you don't want to go back to a 52. Keep it all those 52 jeans. I'm going to store them. Nope. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Pack them up and drop them off somewhere. Donate them. They're fine jeans. Somebody could wear them. There's another fat person out there who is like, you know what? I really could use a pair of 52s. <laughs> I lost another four pounds last week. So See? 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 Yeah, you know why, Babs? I ate a little more that last week. I'm sorry. What? <laughs> I, I ate a little more I, I actually used some of my weekly points and stuff like that i'm sorry and I, was, and I was thinking to myself oh this is a bad thing i'm gonna gain and i lost four pounds that's what i how i told you your body gets into a deficit situation and it acts like you're not gonna get more food so you gotta give it more food just gotta give it more food so i'm so it can so it can burn so it can be optimum i'm at 77 pounds lost now Look at you. Guess where I'm at, a pound's lost. Oh, you, you know, you're going to start pretty soon, Babs. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, it's 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 amazing. Karen took out old jeans yesterday. And she threw me the size 40. And she's like, here, try this on, because you can't wait, keep wearing those pants. And I'm like, 40? There's just no way I'm going to fit into this 40. Just, I, I just no, don't understand no. why you would be having these conversations. Yeah, I don't know why. I, mean, I don't why, know I, why don't you just do what your wife tell you to do and, and be quiet. <laughs> I, well, there's just no way I could. I thought I would fit into a forty, and I fit into the forty. I'm sorry, your wife is all knowing. I don't. I don't understand why. Why after after thirty some odd years you still? I don't. I don't believe you, Karen. <laughs> So yeah, so I'm wearing clothes my wife picked out. So there yes, you and that color looks so good on you. Okay. <laughs> you look great, Harry. <laughs> black feels just home, like home for me. I, I get it. I feel at home in black too. <laughs> black is luxury. I get it. So uh, yeah, so I'm happy. I'm I'm shocked i know you you're like 
you've been doing the work. Why are you shocked? But I know you've been doing the work. It's not like you. But I'm shocked that I I'm in a forty right now. I'm um, I'm glad because I know the work that you put in, and I know how hard it is. And to be and you know, I think it's I think it's different for people of color because our culture and the way our food and all of that, you know, it makes it very difficult. You know, yeah. some of these things you got to give up, and it's or you have to reimagine them in another way. It can be challenging. It sure does, especially here in Lavos, right? They have these meals at lunchtime, and it's like, am I going to have dinner twice? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I can't have dinner at lunchtime and then have dinner with my wife. So it's like, it's hard. So anyway, so we'll talk about this tomorrow. Yes. Yes, we'll talk about this tomorrow, but it's good to see you. Woo. I got two people I really, really, really did coming on this morning. So I've got um, Brian Slatery and Adam Matlock. And these two genius, geniuses, and, and I do mean geniuses and Renaissance men, um, have uh, created an opera around the Greenwood, or as we come to know it, the Tulsa Massacre, which y'all know was a two-day race riot. Well, it wasn't a race riot for us. It was white folks, <laughs> white folks just destroying um, um, uh, a, a, a entire black neighborhood, and then destroyed records, buried it, and it was damn near almost lost in history. So, so anyway, Adam Matlock and Brian Slatery, who are uh, amazing artists and musicians in their own right, have uh, created an opera. And I, 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 when I saw it. I was like, what is going on here? Good morning, Adam and Brian. T tell me this story. <laughs> Adam, you should go first. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, well, I'll, uh, I'll, I guess I'll jump in here. Yeah, so, so I guess the, the story in terms of how this opera came about was uh, Brian and I had worked on a previous opera together and it was all science fiction and all that good stuff. Uh, drawing on Brian, uh, Brian's background as a, as a science fiction author, which maybe some of you do not know, but uh, I know those, <laughs> those books are killer. So yeah, they're worth, worth checking out. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so based on that, you know, we, um, you know, after a couple of years after I'd sort of started thinking about what, what the next similar project might be. Um, and I think I was one of those people who found out about the Greenwood massacre from social media, you know, like on Tumblr or something like that, you know, where, because it's just one of those things where in the, you know, since we first started talking about this project, which is maybe seven or eight years ago now, um, you know, the public awareness of it has really blossomed, uh, you know, and of course, you know, and like in just in terms of there being conversations about it, you know, probably if any of you have seen uh, the HBO uh, series Watchmen, uh, you know, it's a plot point there. Um, I actually have not yet seen it because I, I didn't want to. Uh, and to and watch Lovecraft it Country, too. Lovecraft, Lovecraft Country had a whole segment part of it, too, which yeah. was. Whew. Yeah, right. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's starting to show up a little bit more just in terms of people sort of being aware of it. Uh, of course, it is not an isolated event in terms of, you know, things that were categorized at that time as race riots, right? Um, you know, and most of the time that terminology was uh, particularly selected to obscure uh, the truths of the matter, um, you know, which we now understand to be more or less I mean, well, still not cut and dried completely, right? But, you know, certainly more or less cut and dried in terms of how it got started, what were the reasons that it got started, how it escalated, right? Um, and so it has this really, you know, pretty... <sighs> 
you know, it, it feels kind of cynical to say this in a, in a sense, but like there is a there is a real sense of drama to how it all unfolded. Right. You know, uh, it starts with, um, you know, the kind of like just an incident and a misunderstanding as we as we now know it between, you know, a black shoeshine uh, shoeshine boy and, uh, you know, and a white elevator operator uh, who's a young woman. And you know, this, the history of this country is to, uh, in many ways is to be extremely defensive of white women from black masculinity. Um, you know, and, uh, many policies have sort of been a, you know, a result of, um, you know, of, of that, right. You know, lynching laws seem to seem to, um, uh, reflect that anxiety. Um, and so, uh, you know, so basically it, it was kind of a word of mouth thing that really just sort of like overflowed very quickly in terms of, um, the young man was accused of assaulting the young woman and, uh, you know, and he was uh, arrested uh, and then, you know, a mob sort of came for him and, you know, sort of in the ensuing aftermath, there was, uh, you know, people were like, we're not going to stand for this. We've seen this happen before so many times. Um, let's let's get our guns and defend ourselves. Right. And so, you know, this is 1921. Many of the people who are living in Tulsa are, uh, you know, black freedmen, uh, many of whom fought in World War One. So, you know, they had gone to sort of serve this country and then came back to, um, you know, to see just the same old, same old, um, you know, when they when they returned in terms of racial dynamics, in terms of ability to own property. So, you know, the establishments in Tulsa had a lot to do with just like sort of, you know, reclaiming the narrative, right? You know, getting a chance to sort of, um, you know, have the agency that uh, that they felt that they were deserved um, after, at the very least, serving, you know, serving uh, in the military, you know, if not accounting for uh, everything else even before that, too. So, um, yeah. And so, I don't know, that uh, that's my kind of entry entry point into it. Um, you know, because it really starts as like a small kind of thing that ripples out on an exponential scale over the course of two days. Um, and by, you know, by the time, uh, you know, those two days had passed, uh, most of the Greenwood district had been raised, um, you know, and it is, uh, it is pretty strongly believed to have been firebombed even by the U.S. National Guard, um, which was one of those things that, you know, it's like, uh, in in the minds of certain people is like seems unconscionable, right? You know that the government would turn um, its military forces towards its own citizens, right? Uh, of course, this is the sort of thing that like when we hear it from other places in the world, it's like, oh yeah, that's a thing that they do somewhere else, right? You know, that's not an American thing to do, right? Um, and so, you know, I think that uh, the uh, awareness of this and the um, yeah, I don't know, the, the kind of like just re recent sort of understanding of it really, you know, puts a lot of thing in perspective, uh, you know, for for uh, Americans who have a, a belief about, you know, what this country is to some degree. So mm. that's pretty good, Adam. Brian, yeah, what, it's, it's, what else do I say? Right. <laughs> no, no. I'm, so, I mean, from my perspective, it was. Uh, I mean, this, this in some ways this has been one of the most rewarding slow burn projects I've been involved in, because um, I hadn't heard about the Greenwood massacre until Adam brought it up, saying, "Hey, you want to like help me write an opera about this?" And um, in some ways, like my learning about it in order to be able to write the libretto for it is a is a pretty awesome encapsulation of like what I've seen the rest of the country have to do in dealing with it. <laughs> Cause you go, I've gone from like complete ignorance to, you know, sort of feeling the the sense of like the layers of the story being peeled back and the, and the, the, um, the lies and prevarications and 
obfuscations being peeled back to reveal what exactly happened. Um, you know, like our early conversations about it, um, what was kind of cool is like eight years ago or seven years ago, or, you know, a million years ago when we first started doing it, um, the story wasn't quite out yet. You know, there wasn't, um, we had a, we had a bunch of books that we, that we'd both read about it, but there were a lot of question marks in those books. Um, and there was a, there was real friction between what the survivors of the massacre had remembered and what the official story was. And it wasn't that, I wouldn't say it was that I doubted the survivors' memories. I would say, but I, I do remember saying to Adam, like, we need, we need like there to, there to have been evidence of these things. Like we can't make our own set of false claims. And, you know, I was nervous about that. And then, you know, sure enough, like as the anniversary of the massacre approached, um, you know, there, there, was a, there was a new round of investigations. There have actually been like several rounds of investigations and several attempts at reparations, which is really important um, since the massacre. And each round of investigations has revealed that what survivors remembered is what actually happened. You know, not terribly surprising, but, you know, at the time you, you go, okay, you know, we, we want to base this thing on facts. We want the facts to, to be the, the, the weight of the story. We want the truth to be on our side. And um, basically, like, I think, I think by now, like, even the, even the firebombing has become a matter of fact rather than a matter of debated, you know, than, than a matter of debate. Um, what I found very interesting in like you know during the uh, anniversary of the of the massacre when people sort of congratulated themselves especially white people congratulated themselves on knowing that it happened at all um there there is a like the kernel of uh <laughs> the thing that you know there's the kernel of um yes but we still don't know where the most of the bodies are you know they're, they're still accounting for possibly hundreds of people um and even more important is that there's you know there's a part of me having having read you know all the books that adam gave me about it and about the you know the attempts to get reparations for it that you know even the reason that this state of oklahoma and the city of tulsa have recognized that it happened is because all the survivors are now dead and it's much harder to claim reparations well, there's three 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 still alive there's three still remaining. Are yes. there? Yeah, but they're like, just, but, they're, uh, but they're like children. You know, it's like it's. Yeah. The, the The deal is that it's like it's harder for somebody to say, you know, like I had property and I lost it. You know, like that direct connection of like, you know, these people burned down my house. These people burned down my business. You know, those things would be very easy to show in court, and the connections between what's been lost and the and the you know and the people who lost it have been largely severed. So it's easier for for them to sort of avoid actually paying. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. It's like talking you know, to it as a way of avoiding. Yeah. 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 And there's like a bill a, or something like that. Yeah. Know? Like yeah. the very, the, like the very like skeptical part of me goes like, you know, this isn't an accident that you're suddenly copying to it. Like probably some statute of limitations has run out that, you know, that has, that has let them say like, okay, fine. It happened, you know, and then they can score some easy political points and go home. And, um, that 
it's interesting to me that like that part of the conversation um, didn't come out. And even the idea, you know, people would say, you know, uh, you know, people should be looking for reparations for that. And you'd be like, yes, they've been trying pretty much since it happened. Yeah. It's and they've been, gotten the three remaining 100 of years of trying to get have, have gotten some monies for their families. But right. I mean, it'll never nothing like the scale of the yeah. destruction. I mean, yeah. like not even close, you know. Well, and that's that's the thing is that you know all the books that we read, um, you know, they none none were published any later than probably two thousand six, right? And so all yeah. of the, their facts were sort of based on a previous attempt at an investigation, which was you know like right. really did not pan out. Um, you know, there was there was a sort of like truth and reconciliation committee. You know, they they sort of did their due diligence, but you know, uh, obviously there was there's some big holes still, right, in that story. Um, Huge. And, you know, even um, even just a couple of weeks ago, I think it was just two weeks ago, there was like further news about, you know, discovery of more unmarked graves in Tulsa, you know, that, that are believed yeah. to be, um, you know, victims of the massacre, right? So this is still current events in a manner of speaking, you know, even though it is now over 100 years old. Last year was the 100 year anniversary of it, you know? Um, and yeah, it's just, it's pretty incredible to think, <laughs> to think about that stuff, right? Just because it's... Um, uh, you know, it, it feels kind of cavalier, right? You know, it's like here, here we have like a, a tale that you know truly is not unique in so many ways in terms of how it describes aggression, how it describes um, a response to uh, you know property ownership and agency, and you know sort of self sufficiency, right? You know, we've seen we we saw this all across the early twentieth century, especially um, you know in in like sort of uh, black communities, free black communities, things like that. Um, and it's uh, you know it so. Yeah, I guess there are just there are, there are parts of it that are that are um, you know it, like anyway, just just like how it how it sort of sort of comes in into the present. I feel like is that it um, you know is that especially after uh, you know the summer of 2020 and George Floyd protests and everyone was like, oh well, now we've got this huge laundry list of like you know racial equity things that we need to do. Like that, you know, this really started showing up in the news a little bit more. Um, you know, where there had been maybe, you know, a half dozen articles published between, you know, 2006 and 2018 or something like that, that just occasionally would sort of check in or would do some reporting or something like that. Um, uh, and, you know, so, yeah, I mean, I think it uh, it's it's kind of, you know, of course, it's uh, welcome that I guess people are acknowledging it and are trying to, you know, kind of kind of reckon with it to some degree. Um, you know, of course, the timing is, you know, it is what it is, right? It took maybe it took for a lot of people seeing, uh, you know, the George Floyd's murder and then the resulting protests and the response to those protests um, as even just being able to admit that it was possible that uh, this sort of thing could have happened, could have happened by, you know, an institution, a power holding institution like the American government or like the National Guard or like, you know, whatever. So, um yeah, I don't know. There's a there's there's certainly a lot there, and the ripples kind of continue to unfold. I think so. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, and, I, I, and I'm I sorry, your, Rats, go ahead. And to your point, Adam, I mean, Tulsa is not the only place, so it's not like it's one and done. It's a it's a bunch of it's a bunch of places like Tulsa that this has happened to. Go ahead, You're, Brian. Yeah, no, I was, I, you know, I was going to say like the more like as Adam and I talked about it, I I sort of the, the more I I thought that even this like the the quest for reparations and the and the push to get the get the story out um seemed as interesting to me as the massacre itself these these real questions about you know like who gets to control that story you know who who owns the narrative about that and who owns your memories about that and 
how how easy it can be for you know an, an official to to basically gaslight you, you know, to, to tell you that something that happened didn't happen. And well, I will um, tell you the black press then and now. Yes. Have been carrying this. I mean, I know at the end of the day, I was was, carrying this story for 30 years. Like we totally, we've always carried it. So that's right. I mean, I was going to, I was going to say, and then like, then there's, then there's that great story about the way that like a community is, is, is holding on to that, that they're just like, don't believe it, man. Don't. (laughs) And there, and the thing is like, there are very cool parallels um, in other places like that. Like I'm, so like, I'm a, are Ukrainian and there's a similar there's a similar logic to like the the starvation of Ukrainians under Stalin where mm-hmm. you know the the Russian government was like no everything's fine in Ukraine and Ukrainians are like no, no yeah no. <laughs> you know so like there there are like real parallels to that you know this i this idea that they're you know the 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 community that are the victim like they know what happened and <laughs> so know, so it- so in writing this opera coming together, I mean, you could have chosen, I don't know, any sort of musical medium to tell the story. What was it about the idea of an opera that was uh, compelling? That's a that's a really good question. Uh, to me, to me, it has to do a lot with just the fact that like opera can accommodate multiple voices in a way that resembles argument. Uh, but in a way that makes all kind of angles of it clear, right? If you were to just put like a play of, you know, four people talking at each other at the same time on stage, like, you know, it would be more or less indistinguishable. I'm probably stealing this line from the movie Amadeus, right? But he, you know, it's like, there's like, there's something in there that where he's like, you know, you can put 20 people up on stage and if they're all singing, every part of it is clear as opposed to if they're all talking to each other, right? So in our case, like, you know, we, um, the opera seemed like a good way to just handle the fact that, um, you know, the 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 story was, at least at the time that we started working on it, still, you know, there were still some unknowns, even if, you know, I kind of knew what I thought about it. I'd had my analysis of it, um, you know, to some degree, but like, uh, but it gave us an angle to sort of represent the fact that, um, you know, that, that it wasn't just a foregone conclusion that for a lot of people it needed to be wrestled with, right? So even though people who knew it as an experience, you know, as a matter of experience or like tying into family history or, you know, having parallel uh, things, right? That there, there were just some people who, who would, who would reject that on principle, right? Um, And so our, you know, and, and I think like Brian's framework for this in terms of writing the libretto was, was like, let's not do this in terms of just presenting the events on stage in this, in the form of a grand opera, um, because, Certainly, the events uh, are dramatically very potent, right? But um, but in a sense that like that that kind of can cheapen it too, right? Because there because there are so many unknowns, we would have to sort of make choices if we were just kind of dramatize it that way. Um, that could turn out to be you know untrue later on, or ju- you know would just have to be guesses, or, you know, or uh, something along those lines. So instead, framing it as as like four modern people, people in the present day, kind of talking about it not for any particular reason, you know, we don't really know much about them. Like we don't ever learn their names, but we learn kind of what they think about it, right? There are, you know, characters who start out or there's a character who starts out knowing all about it. And, you know, he's like, you know, he kind of understands like where it came from, but still has a little bit of doubt, right? There's one character who is, you know, 100% believes it, you know, is like, you know, and is like ready, you know, ready to sort of convey that to anyone else who questions it, right? And then there are characters who just like, you know, there's one character who just didn't really know about it and was just like, I can't believe, you know, know, just like has that sort of um, 
uh, incredulousness about it, right? And then and then one character who's just like kind of a jerk, and he, uh, you know, he's like, I, that come on, that couldn't have happened, you know, that sort of thing, um, and becomes increasingly defensive, you know, as yes. The- as people do right right and there's like i I mean it felt like a good way to sort of be like you know which one do you resonate with um you know which which one do you want to be (laughs) you know which which one are you which one are you now and which one would you maybe want to be like you do you want to change you know there's (laughs) there's Uh. there's options you know so so there's room for uh contemplation and discernment (laughs) yeah that's i mean yeah i mean just i think mostly because i mean at least from from my perspective i did want to represent the idea that like for i think for a lot of people even so i mean even this uh you know the 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 title comes from the interesting thing that like you know eight seven eight seven years ago when we were talking about this nobody was even calling it the greenwood massacre it was the tulsa race riot Every book that we had called it like they're like, it's a riot, it's a riot, it's a riot. Mm. And then you'd read the book and be like, I don't think that that doesn't sound like a riot exactly, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and we talked about that, uh, you know, it, early on that it's just like, what a word to describe what happened. It's not the, it's not the right word. And, and, like, and, and it's deliberate, but that's deliberate. Absolutely. Absolutely. And deliberate like, way to whitewash the truth a million percent and then like just even seeing that i mean that like if anything came out of you know people knowing that it happened in 2021 it was at least to flip that word over right it was yeah. at least to sort of say okay it's not a it's not a riot it's a massacre <laughs> you know, like that's that's the big move and like that i mean while i just talked about how sort of frustrating it can be that that it you know, that the push didn't go far enough. Um, there's, you know, there's a victory there in, a, in acknowledging that, you know, that this word has to change. That it's, it's, it's just a noun, but the noun means a lot. And, yeah. you know, that's Absolutely. the, uh, you know, it, that, that's the part that gives you a little bit of hope too, that, you know, that people can learn about something and they can change their frame on how they understand what happened. Wow. So... And doing this opera, and as the, as as the information is unfolding, like because every so often we get some new information about yeah. the Greenwood Massacre. Did that color what you were creating? Like, did you leave space for if some more information became available or discovered? Could you include it? Could you consider it? Like, was it yeah. was it that kind of progress process yeah so well i mean you know we brian and i like uh you know brian wrote the libretto like i gave some feedback but you know like those those are brian's words right and so you know we did discuss it a couple times in draft um but i think you know that just the timeline of this was that this work was funded by a grant from the bitsy clark fund um which was awarded in 2019 so even you know the first uh first act that you know that uh that is going to be uh you know sort of presented on friday um you know that was done even before the last couple of years of of recent rediscoveries and um you know sort of things like that 
Um, you know, but it took a number of forms along the way as it as it went. Um, and the second act, which uh, will not be presented on Friday, just because it has not been written yet musically, um, you know, is. Uh, uh, but you know, the the libretto is sort of uh, exists in a draft, and Brian has told me that you know he's like already planning to go back and look at the ending of it because there are just just things that have changed in the man, you know, over the course of the last like two and a half years since he showed me that draft, right? So, um, and you know, that's just kind of you know, I, I think that's like that's an important part of the process too, right? Is that um, you know, you, when you think of a historical opera, right, you tend to think of it as like there's a clear border sort of defined around, you know, what the events are that you're writing. And, you know, that helps you to sort of define what your lead is or what your angle is. Um, and, you know, I think that that is, you know, that is certainly one way to do things. But, uh, you know, working on a creative process, like, you know, if you're if you're not editing what you do, like chances are it's not going to be very good. Right. So even if we were just editing for you know, for aesthetic reasons, like let alone yeah. historical updates. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, that was you know, that was just a way to, to sort of keep ourselves honest. Right. In terms of like, you know, the work that, uh, you know, it. it for me, I had a sense of what, I, how I wanted it to sort of represent, uh, you know, what kind of musical language I was trying to dig into in order to convey some of the tension, convey some of, but also some of the flourishing of, of Greenwood, you know, before this happened, right? Because um, it's important for, for listeners to, uh, and, you know, any, any sort of student of this history to understand how flourishing the place was before it was destroyed, right? We don't want to just fixate on the destruction as the negative thing that, you know, that is sort of like rippling it throughout the, the ages, but also the fact that so many folks there were property owners, like that there, you know, there were schools, churches, movie theaters, you know, pharmacies, things like that. There was, there was just, it was like, um, you know, a, a truly like sort of flourishing independent area. And of course, and, not the only one, right? There's video, there's real video to this too. Like somebody, yeah. somebody captured Tulsa in its heyday, um, mm -hmm. in that neighborhood in its heyday on film. So you and it was fun. Pieces. I mean, and it was fun. I mean, which, which is kind of important, right? Like it, it was, it was also like the, the, the accounts of the neighborhood is that it was like the place people went to have a good time. Mm -hmm. You know, there was, it, it, like you get the, you get the impression that like Friday and Saturday night kind of ruled. <laughs> like yeah, was, probably better than New Haven, to be honest. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like there were, you know, there were a lot of like, cl like clubs and theaters and restaurants and, you know, all of those, all of those things that, you know, like there's like there's a there are a couple of like good little kernels in like old country songs about like Greenwood being like where everybody went to have fun when they were in Tulsa. Yeah. And it's and like it 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 feels important to convey that for sure. You know, that it's I like, mean not not unlike Hall not uh, not unlike Harlem, absolutely not unlike Baltimore, not sure. unlike the south side of Chicago or yeah. Uh, uh, you know, East LA, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, but those, those things that those three things that you mentioned, right. I mean, I think like part of the, the challenging of the, of the narrative for me was learning that, you know, like I, I was raised, you know, even though my family sort of originates back to South Carolina. Right. And there's, you know, there's, there's a Southern connection there. I was learned that the South did not have things like that. Right. Um, and so all the, you know, Baltimore, you know, Harlem, those, these are all like sort of, you know, Northern, North, North of the Mason Dixon line, so to speak. Or right? Atlanta. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Atlanta too. Right. Memphis. But, but you know, it, those things are not as emphasized to, to, well, in, in my upbringing as someone who, you know, grew up in new England, you know, primarily, right. It was like that, that was a very, just, it was gave me a very different picture of what, uh, you know, what the South was to people, right. And to, to black people in 
particular, right? Um, and, you know, I, I had just like inherited a fair amount of this from, you know, from even from my family who was, you know, like they migrated to, to Ohio and, you know, in the, uh, I think it was the forties, I guess, but, um, um, you know, but, uh, and it was just one of those, one of those things like where, you know, we just like kind of, uh, kind of kept some of that stuff, right? Just like, uh, you know, in terms of the, uh, the belief that like there was nothing really for black people in the South, which of course is obviously untrue, right? But and uh, as I grew up and experienced more of that, I you know I uh, I, I got got to challenge that too. But um, you know I think there's like there's just so much of the of the sort of like narrative about you know whether it's sort of like you know um, just like too too rural, too rundown, too unsafe. You know like everything is like you know everything in the South is a is a dark back road where you know where a Klansman is waiting or something like that. And that's you know of course that's not the case, right? Um, and, but you know then these bastions of culture and you know and activity, economic activity, social activity were obviously targets, right? Uh, in those same conditions. So you know that that part of it was uh, it was a, a big part of you know how I learned from this from learning about this. Mm. Mm. So, so the the uh, the opera debuts on Friday Correct. at the Neighborhood Music School in the Recital Hall, and it's free. It is free, yes. Yeah. So, uh, to be completely clear, it is not a performance; it is sort of a listening party. Okay. Um, you know, since since the the grant conditions had to be filled in the midst of a pandemic, we ended up recording. Um, uh, just you know, was looking at all the all the droplet studies, and it seemed like singers were you know were. Uh, uh, bad news, uh, so to speak, in terms of transmission. So we decided to get get together and, uh, you know, uh, we managed to get together in April uh, at Firehouse 12. We were able to record, you know, with like plenty of space between that's everybody. That's a great place. Yeah. Like, that's a great space. Absolutely. Yeah. And it sounds really great, you know, just like to be able to work with uh, with three other singers. You know, I sang I sang one of the parts. Um, really? Uh, Who know, did you sing? And I sang, I sang number one. I sang the jerk. <laughs> Uh, yeah, because I, I wanted to kind of like you know engage. Someone's got to do it. Like, you know, someone's got to do it. Like I had my idea of you know of what it was, and then to go into this role that was completely the opposite of that. Um, you know, it was it was kind of kind of messed up to some degree, but it, uh, you know, but I'm glad I did it to some you know because I think that that helps to help me to, a little bit to understand just at, while singing those words. You know, that like, is uh, messed up. <laughs> don't don't even get me started but yeah it was um but you know i'm like i'm one of those people who uh you know as a songwriter as a singer performer sometimes like lyrics just do not hit me until like you know until i sing them right i can listen to a song a hundred times and then like finally on the hundred and first time something will click right um, and so, you know, sim like I had some moments during this recording process where it's like, I'm, you know, thinking about the weight of what I'm saying and like, you know, what this character is trying to convey, um, you know, in response to people getting justifiably angry about this horrifying thing that happened, you know, um, and yeah, I don't know. It was a, it was a certainly, it was a very eye-opening experience in terms of just like trying to, trying to get into that, into that headspace of what, uh, you know, what like what what does the denier really believe right you know are they just being a contrarian are they just you know like are they just like trying to stir stuff up um you know there's all all, all things like that right but um you know those those are like uh yeah really really good questions i think for for me to just be thinking about too so mm. i like I, I had a similar process writing it i mean i would, like i would describe i mean this is like i like i said before i mean this has been uh this was like a wonderful learning experience for me, you know, in, in, the, in the course of working on this. 
And I would describe myself as almost like drifting from one character to another over the course of time. Um, And it was because I had done that, it was really interesting to write then from the perspectives of, you know, of all of them and have to put myself into the space of like, like when you're writing characters, you don't, it's cheap to say, you know, that like this person is just, just, just a shallow jerk. The shallow jerk doesn't think they're a shallow jerk. Right. Like they, they have motivations, they have things that they think are important to them. And you have to figure out what those things are in order to like make them into a human being, you know, and not just a caricature. But um, sometimes that process is really uncomfortable <laughs> because, you know, I myself do, you know, I don't enjoy talking to number one in the, <laughs> in this opera. Like I'm not, I'm not that person and I don't particularly you know, like talking to people like that most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to put all those things aside. You know, it's it's because your job is to try to represent a viewpoint and to represent. I mean, it's certainly a viewpoint that exists in the world, and mm-hmm. you yeah you have to you have to do justice to it also, as unpalatable as that sometimes is. So, um, what do you want the goal to be for this opera? Like, what is the ultimate goal, Adam and Brian? Like, where do you where do you want this to go? Who do you want to see it? Should it be on the big stage at Arts and Ideas? Like, what what do you want? I yeah, I think I mean ultimately the goal is like a you know a stage production of it, right? Um, so this you know just with the agreement of the of the you know the the Bitsy Clark Fund. Uh, you know, this sort of satisfied the conditions of the grant and, you know, just given the circumstances, given the pandemic, given everything, you know, um, and, uh, you know, but there are lots of notes in the libretto, uh, you know, about like sort of working with certain movement artists or projections or things like that, that, you know, help to sort of expand the story so that if it goes up on stage, it's not just, you know, four people sitting on stools, like under spotlights, just arguing with each other, but that there's like something that really brings some of that stuff to life. And, you know, and in this form, you know, I'm hoping that the music does that to some degree. Um, But the, you know, the score at this point is an, an, excuse me, an electronic score. Um, And so, you know, when, when it comes to the stage, I would, you know, like to reorchestrate it for an actual ensemble, probably not a full orchestra, um, because I think that, you know, the music could could be better told by, you know, like maybe in the style of, um, you know, some many of the great sort of black opera composers of the last, you know, last 50 years, Anthony Braxton, Anthony Davis, you know, there's there's some really great ones who have used some of the language of uh, improvisation or of jazz in their operas. Um, and, you know, not worked with the uh, standard conception of what, um, you know, a sort of an opera orchestra could be. Um, and sort of that, you know, that can help you to sort of push against genre lines, you know, it can help you to sort of um, deal with these kind of outbursts of, of emotion that come up as a, as a result of just kind of engaging with this stuff. Um, and so, you know, but obviously before that happens, uh, you know, writing the music for the second act uh, will be uh, in a, a pretty crucial part of that, too. So. Now, do you have a timeline for the second? Like, is it going to take another eight years? Like, like what? <laughs> I hope not. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's and and most likely no. I mean, I think at this, you know, at this at this stage, it's just like kind of a matter of like once this this sort of premiere happens, um, you know, and I get the chance to talk to some more people about it, get some feedback. Um, you know, I, I think it, it will be a lot easier to, to go forward with the work. Um, you know, one of the things creatively that, that I think is, you know, is a challenge when you're doing sort of grant funded work is that you kind of have to explain what the thing is going to be in order to get the funding. And then if the thing feels like it's changing shape too much, right, 
um, you know, then you like you sometimes have to resist that. It's like, well, I've already told all these people what it's going to be to some degree. Right. <laughs> and that's a weird dynamic as an artist. Right. But that's the nature of arts and arts funding and all that stuff. So, um, you know, so I think that like now uh, that some aspect of it is fixed, it will be easier both to revise and to go forward because I now have like this, you know, this pretty clear benchmark of, um, you know, what it can be creatively uh, and what, it, you know, what uh, musical language I think, you know, kind of really serves it. Um, so, you know, uh, and, you know, part of it is just like figuring out ways to sort of craft this tension um, in such a way that it, uh, you know, that it doesn't, but that it's listenable, right, but that it still sort of conveys, um, you know, the, the kind of strains that were in the story, so. I'm, I'm excited. I, I won't be able to, I won't be in town to catch the, uh, to sit in on the listening party, so I hope I have opportunity to hear it a, another time or if somebody yeah the video. audio i will i will be posting the audio afterwards um oh, good. You know, at some point so we're you know hoping to do this as kind of something like a premiere and then you know um a little bit beyond that there will the audio will be available online um for the folks yeah who are not able to make it um so i would i would like that um so uh, talk a little bit about going through this process i mean this is this is no light subject right this is this is history this is race this is this is pain. This is a lot of things. Um, how did you manage that? Like, how did you manage your emotions, both of you, through this? Because this is this is heavy. Um, it's very heavy, and and it's hard to sort of. Uh, I find it very hard to uh, stay in these spaces of this kind of story. So, how did you do it? Uh, for I'm, me, it was a lot of short bursts with breaks in between. Um, and, you know, part of that had to do with the fact that, you know, I was I was writing it at a point where all of my teaching was happening from home. You know, I was like spending a lot of time just on, you know, on Zoom for private lessons or for classes, things like that. Um, and, you know, just like at, in, you know, early, early and mid 2020, like, you know, when, when there was still so much that was unknown, I think, you know, like uh, that isolation was not exactly the same as, you know, like doing an artist retreat, right? Because I was, you know, I was on social media all the time trying to stay connected to people, you know, and then of course the protests were happening and then I was glued to it, right? Um, and there was, I think, a point where I just like was watching a live stream of a protest while writing, uh, you know, working on some part of the, of the fifth scene, which is, you know, where stuff really is like, you know, where the tension really starts to ratchet up. And uh, that psychologically would not recommend. It was the worst probably decision for my mental health that I've made, but it definitely challenged, you know, it like sort of just made me really sort of feel this sort of flattening of time, right? Because, you know, here is a thing that happened a hundred years ago, but it is so similar to so many things that have happened, you know, since, just continually since, right? Um, and, uh, you know, I think it, so it, it made me able to sort of plug into it in ways that were more, you know, that it didn't feel like it was in a historical bubble, right? It was like, there are, there are some things that I've experienced, you know, I'm like, I'm light-skinned enough that I don't really get targeted by the police in the same way, you know? Like, I have to be, be real about that, you know? But like, I have had some encounters with police, I've had some encounters at protests, I've had some encounters with drunk people at bars, you know? where just like things, things just start to bubble over, right? And I could tap into that and kind of like recognize that, um, you know, as like being all part of the same current to some degree, right? Um, which is that, you know, this, and, and to me, the current, the current is like, not just like about 
like racial justice so much. It's about agency, right? People were just trying to get their agency. They were trying to get their, what they believed the American dream had promised them, you know? Um, and, and then reckoning with the fact that, you know, the rug was swept out from under them, right? You know, just reckoning with the fact that it was never really meant to be, you know? Um, and I think that probably, you know, many marginalized people, especially black people in this country have had some moment of reckoning with that. Maybe some even before they were too young to realize, right? Um, you know, but like that, that aspect of it was, um, it was yeah it was how it how it made it possible for me to um you know to to see that as a you know as as part of a thread you know and uh yeah so right well, um i'm really glad that adam and i are such good friends um <laughs> there was a lot of uh you know as you as you can imagine like there is a lot of uh like figuring out how to put this together and figuring out what we what we wanted to say um involve the kind of like tough conversations that you talk about um people uh should that, that people should have but that there's, there's not often a place to do it um and like thankfully we've been friends for years at this point i, I but, but by the time we started talking about it i think there was just a lot of trust built into it and um you know we were able to we were able to say things that are difficult to say and work through how to like make those into a piece of art that we can both stand behind. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, it would, as it, you know, in hindsight, it was great practice for 2020 and 21. <laughs> like when people are trying to figure, you know, when white people around me are trying to, how do I talk about this stuff? And I was like, well, <laughs> you know, I I I feel like I've been around this track a few times now, and you know, there's there are there are ways to do this that you know they, you can you know you can uh, you can speak honestly and openly, and at the same time respectfully, and you know, <laughs> making making yeah you know because I think I think the too uh, I think that too often people are uh, afraid of having those conversations. Oh and, yeah. You know, and I, I, I've, I think, I mean, personally, it's done a lot to make me less afraid of that, you know, and sort of saying like, well, you can, we can talk about this. We can talk about all of this stuff. We can, we can, we can uh, uh, make it really uncomfortable and then sit with that and figure out how to move forward from it. And um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think this feeling that like the nervous sweat is not the worst thing in the world. Right. Like, you know, that, right. like sometimes right. that's going to happen as you're, as you're yeah. sitting through this stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's, you know, so far it doesn't seem to have killed anybody. Right. You know, it's just, but it's like, yeah, it's yeah. certainly uncomfortable. We have to acknowledge that. Right. Totally. In but it's probably to also, moves. yeah. And it's probably also a sign that we're doing something interesting. You know, mm, like yeah. it's not, it's the, it didn't, it didn't ever feel safe. You know, and like uh, the the human in me is terrified of that, and the artist in me is delighted. You know, <laughs> you kind of like that's. I mean, look what we're writing about. Like, it's just it's supposed to. You're supposed to feel okay after it. Like, forget that. You, know, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> like you, 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 you no want way. people to uh, yes. have some kind of yes reaction to acknowledge that definitely. Like, know, if we're not, if we're not. If we're on, if we're not uncomfortable, then like probably we did it wrong. You know, who we don't know if we get it right, but yeah. I do think that I do think that we managed to avoid a few like sort of rookie mistakes of making it all too safe mm -hmm. and you know making it all. I'm well, glad. 
<laughs> I, no, I'm glad of that because I yeah yeah yeah. I everybody wants to get us to a kumbaya moment. When, you Maybe know what there I mean? isn't one. Maybe and, there isn't and going to be one. We still have to we yeah. still have to reconcile this stuff. There's no, yeah. you know, there's no kumbaya to this. There is okay. This is painful. This is part yes. of our story. Mm. And uh, how do we make space for it and and continue to be uh, stand in our humanity with each other? I mean, the idea that the idea that you can come to a conclusion that everybody's going to be happy with. Yeah. That, <laughs> come on, man. You know, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know well, but, but there is the more interesting questions about like, what are people willing to give up in order to be able to move forward? You know, what, what are, what are, I mean, and when I say people, I mean, white people, what are, what are they willing to give up? And like, how and also like you know as like message to fellow white people like how important is that stuff that you think is so important <laughs> you know it may be easier to give up than you think it is yeah right is it just a matter of it like is it is it a cultural inheritance to some degree right like is, right. You know, is this a belief that like we you know i grew up so like i grew up in amherst mass right you know um which is a very multicultural town very you know like uh I think it was described uh, as being behind the tofu curtain, you know, at one the point. The tofu curtain, uh, my yeah. favorite phrase. But, it, you know, so like, like Amherst, you know, it has, has UMass there, right? You know, it is, it is like thoroughly like a, you know, a fairly diverse town, but also, you know, what one of the things that, uh, you know, I had to learn growing up there was that racism was not over even there, you know, was that like, you know, having all these accolades and, you know, and, and being able to sort of like show your statistics and, and you know, like doing all, things like that um, uh, was was just a big, you know, it, it was, it, it enabled people to sort of be in denial about things that were beneath the surface to some degree, so. Well, Harry's gonna um, give us the station identification real quick. And, Hi, uh, this is Babs Rawls-Ivy from New Haven, Connecticut. And you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, streaming live at newhavenindependent.org. Thank you. So as we wrap up this conversation, we got about a couple of minutes to wrap this conversation up. Um, tell me, would you, would you, would you do this again? What circumstances would, would you do this again? Because there's a lot of stories out there, right? Like maybe, maybe yeah. it's not this story, maybe it's not a similar story, but would you do this again? Because you're an artist and you create. And uh, there's a lot of, uh, I would say, uh, there's a lot of stories out there. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I feel like having gone through this once, I would, but I would take so many more precautions. Just in terms of just like my workflow right um you know i think that really just you know that when when um you know like like basically it was you know about four months i think or so after you know after the grant was awarded um and i i was like all right i'm gonna just like block out my spring break i'm gonna i'm, I'm just gonna like really like push this out and then we spent the entire spring break learning how to do zoom and like virtual teaching and stuff because at that point of the pandemic that's you know that's where we were at so um 
you know, so I think I, I would just like go into it with, with the actual intent to really get isolated and get it done. I think that, um, you know, there's like this, this idea of the composer retreat, I think is super useful, right? And it's not because you don't want to be caught like accidentally stealing somebody else's melody or anything like that, right? Um, but it's, you know, because like, uh, just at some point you have to decide for yourself what it's going to be. And when you're in constant sort of like conversation with people about it, it's very easy for what other people want it to be to slip in. Right. Um, and so like having a little bit more of that sort of hermetic approach to it, I think would, would have helped me to understand earlier, like what it, what it needed to be and how I needed to tell it, you know, or how, how I needed the music to, um, to help convey it. So, Mm. Right. Um, oh, I mean, I, I love collaborating. Um, there was a point in my life when I did a lot of artistic things by myself and I'm sort of over it. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm sort of uh, I'm pretty bored with my own set of ideas and my own set of obsessions. And I, I feel like they've been well and thoroughly aired. And uh, <laughs> uh, so, I mean, from a, from the perspective of like a collaborative, like a collaborative project, it's the, it, probably uh, every time Adam asks me to do something, I'll just be like, sure. When, when, when's the deadline? Let's do this. Cause it's. And then uh, hopefully the next time I ask you, there will actually be a deadline so that we don't kick around <laughs> for four years before getting really started. But. <laughs> I love no, it. But I, but I, I do. I, I, I thrive on these on those kinds of conversations. I, I, I learn so much every time, and uh, yeah, it's it's just a it's a wonderful way to keep you know making things that I always feel like they're better than anything I could come up with by myself. I, I think that I think collaboration is just like a a key to making some like really great things. Um, and it's not that I mean not that I have any perspective on what we did was great or not, but I. I do know that it's better than what I would be doing by myself. And then that's, that's really, uh, you know, it's really rewarding. Well, I, I am grateful for your time this morning. I, I, I did not want to miss this opportunity to talk to you about this, this uh, opera. Cause I was so intrigued by it when I saw it, I was like, wow, you know, uh, and I hate that I'm going to be out of town um, for it, but, I will listen in when it gets posted. And uh, I am just in awe of uh, your talents. So thank you all for being my guest first thing this Monday. Yeah, thanks thank for having you so us. so much for having us. Thank you. All right. I can't wait to hear this. So uh, if you all are in town, run by the Neighborhood Music School on uh, Friday, November 18th at 7 p.m. It's going to be in the recital hall. And go sit and listen and, and be a part of this. I think you will not be disappointed and, and and most importantly talk about it too and after, talk about us. it yes that's that's the, that's the kicker yes right. yes so well thank y'all enjoy the rest of your day and uh, you i'll see y'all yeah. out here in these art streets <laughs> <laughs> see you soon see you soon Bye. thank you thank you thank you harry so we're gonna take a break and then i come back with another artist ivy wong who has a exhibit over at our creative arts workshop that's up and uh i'm oh, looking forward to talking to her so i'll talk to her about 10 15. so thank you adam thank you brian thank you bye